The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. June 22nd, 2020. 30 years ago this day, June 22nd, 1990, Checkpoint Charlie, the most famous crossing from East Berlin to West Berlin, and thus the symbol of the Cold War and the division of Europe, Checkpoint Charlie was dismantled. You can now visit its booths in a museum, one of the most popular tourist attractions of a united Germany. For a decade after the fall of the Iron Curtain, the West took a so-called holiday from history. You may recall the era. OJ, Princess Di, Monica. Then came 9-11, and in the two decades since, we've taken a holiday from reality. As we see in the news stories from around the world that barely make the papers anymore. Germans, for example, woke up on this 30th anniversary morning to a lightly reported item that two Syrian refugees boarded a tram in Essen and went all stabby, stabby, stabby on one of their fellow passengers. Ah, get used to it. The guy didn't die, did he? Nature abhors a vacuum, and in the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, there was no unipolar world, but simply the rise of China, as swift and as destabilizing as the rise of Germany in the late 19th century. The West is now at war with itself, with its own past, and thus can't even see that China is already at war with us. And as I wrote in America alone 14 years ago, sorry about the self-quoting, but I don't do it that often. Well, I do actually, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, From America alone 14 years ago, there were two forces at play in the late 20th century. In the Eastern Bloc, the collapse of communism. In the West, the collapse of confidence. One of the most obvious refutations of Francis Fukuyama's famous thesis, The End of History, written at the victory of liberal pluralist democracy over Soviet communism, is that the victors didn't see it as such. Americans, or at least non-Democrat voting Americans, may talk about winning the Cold War, but the French and the Belgians and Germans and Canadians don't. Very few British do. These are all formal NATO allies. They were technically on the winning side against a horrible tyranny few would wish to live under themselves. In Europe, there was an initial moment of euphoria. It was hard not to be moved by the crowds sweeping through the Berlin Wall, especially as so many of them were hot-looking red babes eager to enjoy a Carlsberg or Stella Artois with even the nerdiest running dog of imperialism. But when the moment faded, Pache Fukuyama, there was no sense on the continent that our big idea had beaten their big idea. And with the end of the Soviet existential threat, the innovation of the West only continued. I'll bet that paragraph 14 years old now, against the collected works of Francis Fukuyama, unconstrained by its association with an obviously failed state and its ramshackle satellites, Marxism 
completed its conquest of the West, to the point where the most popular movement in America is openly Marxist and Americans love it. As of Friday civics poll, 52% of Americans support Black Lives Matter. Its aims are Marxist, openly Marxist, and they're supported by more people than support either political party. Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite's successor at CBS, tweeted over the weekend, To all those having trouble saying it, Black Lives Matter. See? It really isn't that difficult. Dan Rather was always a portentous, self-regarding, ham-actor, faux-folksy buffoon. He's now a portentous, self-regarding, ham-actor, faux-folksy buffoon Marxist. True, There are a few people who aren't on board with the new state ideology, but if you speak out against it, or even if you're insufficiently enthused, you risk losing your job, or at least your Twitter account. Hmm, state ideology that you can't oppose in public. Hmm, what does that sound like? Hmm, and just as the icing on the cake... This month, the March of the Morons has come for Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, Christopher Columbus, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Francis Scott Key, Ulysses S. Grant, Teddy Roosevelt. But in Seattle, the statue of Lenin has been untouched on the grounds that, according to Charlotte Clymer, a big transgender spokesperson for the LGBT QWERTY group, the Human Rights Campaign, Uh, On the grounds that, quote, Lenin was not a slave owner, says Ms. Clymer. Really? What do you think it is when your ideology is so failed that they have to build Checkpoint Charlie to keep your so-called citizens from fleeing it? Lenin's gang didn't need to own a plantation. They made half a continent their plantation. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. The summer of love, as the mayor calls it, continues in Seattle. There are lessons there from the Cold War, too. To stem the flow of fleeing citizens that was seriously damaging the East German economy, the Berlin Wall began going up in August 1961. It swam into the world's consciousness a year later when a teenager, Peter Fechter, was shot in full view of hundreds of witnesses as he was scrambling over the wall. He fell back onto the East Berlin side into a tangle of barbed wire and cried out for help. But on the West Berlin side, the American troops could not cross into East German territory. And of course, the East German guards declined to help. Margit can do nothing but stand by and watch as he dies a slow death. This war... It was a traumatic experience for all of us, watching that young man there and hearing him scream for help. At first they were perfectly normal cries for help, and then he started to plead and he got quieter and quieter, as if his life was gradually seeping out of his body. And it was terrible. Really terrible. The West Berlin police threw bandages to Peter Fechter, but they fell short, and he had been shot in the pelvis 
and couldn't reach them. He bled to death in full view of the world. Six decades later, another divided city, another teenager. On Saturday, in the People's Republic of Chop, 19-year-old Lorenzo Anderson was shot. Video from inside the CHOP zone shows a busy scene at 2.30 in the morning. A 19-year-old was killed, and another man was also reportedly shot and taken to the hospital. And I saw one um, gunshot wound on his arm, so I took off my sweatshirt and tied it around uh, his arm above where the gunshot wound was so I could make a tourniquet to try to keep the bleeding down. Bennett says she heard somebody say they called 911, but were told paramedics won't come because police were being blocked from entering. If an ambulance could have come, he would have been there a lot sooner, and he, I think, would probably have been in a lot better shape. Get your vehicle and go! The Seattle Fire Department offered a timeline of events, saying after the first 911 call at 2.19 a.m., they and the Seattle Police Department attempted to enter the area at 2.26 a.m., but were met by protesters, who Seattle Police in their release said were violent. Move out of the way! Seattle Police say detectives are still doing an investigation despite the challenges, and at this time, they do not have any description for a suspect. And I heard, again, loud calls and chants to stand ground to not let anybody in the chop. Lorenzo Anderson was better known to his fellow chopianists by his norm de rap, Lil Mob. Lil Mob, like Peter Fechter, bled out and died. More shooting in chop last night. Here's a chopper getting shot. Yeah, I can walk up there. I do see, I do see some, um, And he looks down at his bleeding hand fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. and realizes that he's been shot. The summer of love. Be sure to wear some flowers in your hand. How much of this are you going to hear about? From Dan Rather's successors at the CBS Evening News, well, you can try Googling. Yahoo, remember them? Yahoo has 1.79% of the global internet search market. Bing has 2.61%. And Google has 92.06% of the so-called market in information. 92.06% of all internet searches. And Kevin Williamson of National Review thinks my call for antitrust breakup of Google is not a good faith argument. Uh, do nothing conservatives will still be huffing about, oh, Google is just a private company, even as their internet connection is switched off and they suddenly wonder why the screen is black now and forever. Under cover of lockdown and looting, the jihad continues. Forbury Gardens in Reading, England, 
is a rather lovely park with a spectacular statue of a lion. Uh, honouring the sacrifice of the 66th Royal Berkshire Regiment at the Battle of Maywand in Afghanistan in 1880. Um, it survived a Black Lives Matter protest in the park on Saturday afternoon, and not long after, while plenty of townsfolk were still in the gardens, uh, some chap decided to go berserk and stab a bunch of people, three of them fatally, three dead in Forbury Gardens, Reading, Berkshire. Uh, the name of the alleged perpetrator is Kari Sadala. He's from, oh, go on, take a wild guess, Libya, Libya. And he's, go on, take another guess. Yes, that's right, he's a refugee who came to the United Kingdom because he was supposedly fleeing all those nasty, mean jihadists that are running all over Libya ever since Hillary Clinton uh, decided she wanted uh, Colonel Gaddafi's scalp on her bedpost. And for the umpteenth... Uh, go on, take one more guess, one more guess. Yes, that's right. For the umpteenth bloody time, thanks to the suicidal immigration and Erzat's refugee policies of the Western world, Mr. Sadala is not a lone wolf, but a known wolf. That's to say, in the curious phrase of the BBC, he was brought to the attention... He was brought to the attention of MI5 last year. If he really was brought to their attention, he didn't manage to hold their attention for very long, did he? Which is why three people are dead and others are now injured. The only novel detail in yet another tediously homicidal story is that Mr. Sadala is reported to have converted to Christianity, uh, which one assumes is a cunning takia move, or the poor lad will not be eligible for his virgins. Speaking of virgins... It's your Monday Mohammed. I've never quite got the 72 virgins thing. Heaven as a brothel, where no one has a clue what they're doing, would be a fairly grim way to spend eternity, to my way of thinking, and very quickly, too. But the revered Islamic scholar of Gaza, Ahmed Khadura, has recently clarified some of the finer points. These are special virgins created by Allah just for hardcore believers like you. The virgins of paradise, says Imam Hadura, have no menstruation, no procreation, no saliva, no mucus, no urine and no excretion. I can't be the only red-blooded male salivating at the thought of a non-salivating woman. But wait a minute, no confinement for pregnancy, no time of the month, no five-minute bathroom breaks, not even 15 seconds for her to blow her nose. So these virgins are just going to be on 24-7? Isn't that going to kind of tucker me out? Well, no. 
No, says Imam Khadora, because Muhammad was given a heads up by Allah himself that he'd made special provision for any insecurities you might have in that respect. In paradise, Imam Khadora explains, you will have the sexual strength of more than just one man. Muhammad was asked by his followers, will we be able to endure this? And he assured them that every man will have the sexual stamina of a hundred men. That's the good news. The bad news is that the non-urinating, non-salivating, non-menstruating women never stop singing. Do not deny yourself the singing virgins of paradise, Imam Kadura uh, tells us. Got it, got it. So you've got the sexual strength of a hundred men. How far is that going to get you with 72 virgins who never take a minute off except to do the talent round of Miss America round the clock? And by the way, what happens to all the Muslim women when they die? Is there some other place where all the drooling incontinent chicks wind up? If that guy in Reading really did convert to Christianity, maybe he just fancied a less pneumatic time in eternity. Join us next time for more top-grade Islamic scholarship from A-list imams on The Mark Stein Show. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to steinonline.com slash club for details. As the march of the morons proceeds, everything must go, including the few items not looted from the supermarket aisles. Aunt Jemima is gone. Uncle Ben is gone. I feel a new feature coming. The Mark Stein Show presents... Hey, leader, strike down the brand. 1920, invented by Christian Nelson. After almost a century, it's down and out. Eskimo Pie. And now, meet the star of our show. Symbol of a treat that quality made famous. America's most famous ice cream treat, Eskimo Pie. Creamy, delicious ice cream made even more exciting with smooth, rich chocolate coating and wearing the label of quality known the world over. Eskimo Pie, the treat you know is tops because it carries its pledge of quality right on the back of the bag. Be sure you save the bags for valuable premiums. Get famous Eskimo Pie at our refreshment stand now. It's America's anytime taste treat. Finest ice cream, finest chocolate. It's delicious. It's delicious, but it's also apparently controversial. It wasn't just seven years ago when it was universally beloved enough to be celebrated on CBS Sunday morning. Well, she's my Eskimo, baby, she's my Eskimo. Hi, she on this day in 
1922, the venerable ice cream treat Eskimo pie was first patented. An Iowa man, Christian Kent Nelson, came up with the idea after seeing a boy who couldn't decide whether to spend his money on ice cream or a chocolate bar. That's true. Christian Kent Nelson was born in Denmark, in Gunstrup. And when he was young, his parents upped sticks and took their seven kids to America and eventually to Iowa, to a small town called Onawa, named after the character in Hiawatha. Uh, That's probably racist too now. In Onawa, Christian Nelson opened a confectionery shop and on that day in 1920, when the indecisive boy stood in his store, his head swivelling from the ice cream to the chocolate bar and back again, Chris Nelson suggested that he buy one of each. Sure, said the kid, I want both, but I only got a nickel. The predicament touched Mr Nelson, and he spent the next few weeks trying to come up with a combination ice cream and chocolate bar, and eventually discovered he could get sheets of cocoa butter to stick to a brick of vanilla ice cream. He made 500 for the farmer's picnic, and for want of a name called them... I scream bars. I scream, you scream, we all scream. I scream bars were the hit of the village picnic and Christian Nelson made more and then he looked around for a business partner to help manufacture the product en masse and he found Russell Stover of Omaha. And in July 1921, they signed a handwritten agreement entering into the business of, quote, coating ice cream with chocolate and dividing the profits equally. But not under the name of I Scream Bars, rather with the new and improved moniker of Eskimo Park. They've got a leader, big cheerleader, oh what a guy. He's got a frozen face just like an Eskimo pie. The first quarter of a million Eskimo pies were sold within 24 hours. By early 1922, when the United States government granted Nelson and Stover patent number 1,404,539, they were selling 1 million Eskimo pies per day. Christian Nelson, not yet 30, was suddenly a very wealthy man. But unfortunately, their trademark was too broad. It included exclusive rights to the word pie when used in any frozen treat. So they found themselves tied up in an awful lot of litigation. Russell Stover quickly had enough and sold his share of the company, using the proceeds to start Russell Stover Candies, about which the least said the better. And by 1924, Christian Nelson was also sufficiently battered to sell the business to the guys who made the distinctive foil wrapper for the Eskimo pie, the United States Foil Company, Uh, which became the Reynolds Metal Company. But he stayed involved when dry ice was invented in 1925. Uh, Mr. Nelson made thermal jugs so that shops without freezers could sell Eskimo pies. Once again, the Eskimo pie orchestra is ready to entertain you. For the opening number, director Harold Stokes has chosen a tune that's full of life and movement. What a day. What a day it was, October 3rd, 1929, when the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled what should have been obvious from the get-go 
uh, that no man should exercise an exclusive copyright on the word pie. And the patent litigation finally ended. Mr. Nelson quit the business, moved to California, and assigned his royalties to his wife, Skid. But he couldn't stay away. And in 1935, he came out of retirement and went back to his beloved Eskimo pie to invent new seasonal variations and eventually an Eskimo machine that speeded up the pie production. Oh, let's rub noses like the Eskimoses. That's a northern custom, turns winter into spring. Each polar guy's a hero when it's under zero. You can always trust them to do that same thing. Christian Kent Nelson retired from Eskimo Pie as Vice President and Director of Research in 1961, by which time the product inspired by that poor unhappy lad in his confectionery shop in 1920 had been licensed around the world. Our Australian listeners will surely know this jingle. Eskimo Pie. There's nothing like it. It turns out there's quite a few things like an Eskimo pie. Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, cream of wheat, all of which are apparently purveyors of racism and bigotry. So how did Eskimo pie get mixed up with that lot? The Eskimos weren't enslaved. They didn't work on ice cream plantations owned by Confederate generals. Reynolds Metal Company, now part of Alcoa, put Eskimo pies up for sale. And the company passed to Cool Brands of Ontario and then to Nestle of Switzerland and in the fullness of time to a subsidiary of Franeri of North Yorkshire, England, uh, which nobody's heard of but has become the second largest manufacturer of ice cream in the world, including such familiar American brands as haagen So we're a long way from Chris Nelson in his shop in Onawa, Iowa. And it's nothing personal, just business. We are committed to being a part of the solution on racial equality and recognise the term is derogatory, say the owners. Is Eskimo pie a derogatory term? No one can reliably say what the word Eskimo means. If you're Montagnier, it means either speakers of a different language or she laces a snowshoe. And maybe it's not Montagnier at all, but Algonquian for eaters of raw meat. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I like a bit of raw food myself from time to time. The old saumon tartare, likewise uh, a tuna tartare. But it's easier to surrender, isn't it? You must never do a tango with an Eskimo. No, no, no. Oh, dear, no. Instead, you should do a tango with an Inuit. Oh, no, wait, that would be culturally appropriating Latinx Terpsichorean tradition, so you're only making things worse for yourself. As the marketing guy put it, this move is part of a larger review to ensure our company and brands reflect our people values. People values. What is that? It's funny how the more sensitive to these amorphous people values our corporations become, the less they sound like they've ever met any actual people. But whatever these people values are, 
They've vaporized 99 years of corporate history, just like that. And who would have ever thought that Russell Stover Candies would outlast his original product, Eskimo Pie? I scream, you scream, we all scream about everything. But was anyone actually screaming about Eskimo Pie? Or is it important to get out ahead of this before they torch the building? And Eskimo Pie joins Columbus and Washington and Our Lady of Fatima as history's greatest monsters. We don't yet know what the new brand identities will be, but maybe Eskimo Pie could be renamed White Mush hemmed in on all sides by the hard, unyielding matter of colour. I'm not screaming for ice cream, but I do shed a tear for another small loss from the great age of American invention melted into oblivion by the fires of an age that can only destroy. Bye-bye, Eskimo pie. Oh, and George Jones, too. I'll love her till I die. She's my Eskimo baby. She's my Eskimo pie. You know what this music means. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Todd Williamson, a Georgia member of the Mark Stein Club, writes, Dear Mark, I generally don't blow smoke, but I must say I love the club and I've greatly enjoyed your shows over the shutdown. Your remarks about Father's Day struck a perfect tone, very real, very plain, without fluff. I wish I could tell my dad happy Father's Day this morning. I must say that I slightly disagree with the well-written letter penned by a fellow club member about a critical topic, Trump's response to the current chaos. Responding to chaos is not easy, whether by word or deed, and Trump could quickly fall into the trap of overplaying his hand and furthering the incorrect notion that he is a fascist. No modern president has endured such constant attacks and ridiculous roadblocks at every turn. This week's examples include the Supreme's stupid decision, read Trump's solution to DACA, and the reports that Trump's Tulsa rally took place before a few (gasps) gasp empty seats. Allegedly, the evil genius AOC and her cunning minions plotted this from their hollowed-out volcanic lair. Local and state governments have allowed chaos to germinate and propagate. This is not Trump's doing. My city of Atlanta has been run by a long list of goofballs, and for years the police department has been a total mess. I can't envision a way that Trump could swoop in and make it all okay. The best solution is Trump's plan to put unemployed Americans back to work and make the economy strong. A fulfilled, employed populace has no need for local political hacks. We win without firing a shot. As to losing Gone with the Wind, I bought a copy years ago and I'm happy to share. (laughs) Generous. That's very generous, Todd. I own my video and audio library, thus I'm not beholden to the great owners of data in the clouds. I don't give a rat's rear end about Netflix. I also live just up the road from Tara, and I can visit any time I want. Statues can be rebuilt. Aunt Jemima got a makeover years ago. She aged a few years and lost the hair covering, as I recall. Yet the world kept turning, and the syrup tastes just as good on a flapjack. I believe Trump knows what he is doing. Let's keep our eye on the real prize in November. Thank you, Todd. 
As a modest maple sugar shacker myself, I vehemently disagree with you on putting Aunt Jemima's on a flapjack, but I'll let that go. Nor am I quite so sanguine about uh, President Trump sitting back as events unfold. Local events are local. But a massive accumulation of local events in Minneapolis, Seattle, Atlanta, Portland becomes a national event and the national government risks getting the blame. We're not going to know for sure on that until 10.30 or so on Tuesday night in November. But here's uh, the line that stood out to me, Todd, uh, that I would like to say a little word about. Uh, You say statues can be rebuilt. The statues won't be rebuilt. We all know that. They're gone for good. And have you seen what passes for 21st century sculpture? The Flight 93 Memorial? Uh, Those plain white panels in some curve that may or may not be an Islamic crescent? Statuary is one of those basic civilizational high skills all but lost, like opera or representational oil painting or string quartets. Over the last century, they were replaced by the popular arts, by movies, pop songs, sitcoms, comic books. Then we started cannibalizing those. Ooh, we've no good ideas of our own anymore, uh, so we'll uh, take all the old ideas and change them. We'll make Spider-Man Hispanic and Archie's best friend gay. Uh, And now we've moved from cannibalization to outright destruction. Uh, Gone with the wind. It's, it's, uh, It's not enough to turn Rhett and Scarlet gay. They've got to go. Well, it's uh, it's old, so who cares? John Cleese, Faulty Towers, the German episode. Well, that's middle age. Uh, Little Britain, an equal opportunity abuser from this century. It's not old or middle aged. It's the day before yesterday, but it's already obsolete. The March of the Morons is the literal dead end of culture. Uh, when you're all out of new creativity, all you can do is torch the old. This is a big subject, not one to bring up as we approach the final stretch of today's show. Uh, But as with the political fallout and the existential challenge, uh, we will attend to these themes in future episodes. Mark Stein's Last Call. You only live twice, said Ian Fleming. These days, great men die twice. First, when they shuffle off this mortal coil. Second, when their statues are torn down, set alight and tossed in the lake. We have entered the ISIS scorched earth phase of the war on statuary. And as we will all be getting used to a lot of empty plinths as we stroll around town, I thought it might help to remember some of the missing faces on the municipal landscape. There is only one man we can start with. As Columbus announced, when he knew he was bounced, it was swell, Isabel, swell. Christopher Columbus had a good run, but is well and truly bounced. This month, his monuments have tumbled all over the map, starting with a trio of statues in just 48 hours in Virginia, Minnesota, Massachusetts. These were all relatively recent sculptures. Richmond's dates from 1927, St. Paul's from 1931 
and uh, Boston's from 1979. The impetus behind all three came from the Italian-American community for whom Columbus, born in Genoa in 1451, was a way to connect their own more recent arrival in the United States with the fellow who'd got the whole thing rolling. Uh, One notes that when the proposed statue first came up in Richmond, it was rejected by the city council on the grounds that Columbus was A, foreign, and B, Catholic. That rather overlooked how central he was to the United States' nascent identity in the years after the Revolutionary War. His fellow Italian, John Cabot, Uh, discovered America on behalf of the British crown, Henry VII, so he was something of a problematic figure. Columbus, on the other hand, had no such unpleasant associations, which is why his name became a synonym for America itself. Columbia, who for a century or so was a female warrior personification of the United States, as Britannia was for the United Kingdom. That's why we have the District of Columbia and Columbia Pictures and the Columbia Broadcasting System and what was for the entire 19th century the de facto national anthem of the United States. Hail Columbia! Columbia, happy land. Columbia was America. America was Columbia. Have you seen her lately? Toppled in St. Paul, drowned in Richmond, beheaded in Boston. Christopher Columbus. Oh, there's lots to see in Bristol, so come down and look around. But best beware, cause places there ain't always what they sound. There's no fish in the fish buns, no hay in hay market. If you're coming far, don't come by car. There's no place you can park it. Bristol in Western England owes a lot of its prosperity and prominence to a man called Edward Colston. Mr Colston, in turn, owed a lot of his prosperity and prominence to the transatlantic slave trade in which he invested very vigorously from 1680 to 1692. He used his profits to found almshouses, hospitals, schools, several churches and the cathedral in Bristol. A century after his death, he was described as, quote, the great benefactor of the city of Bristol. Uh, Three centuries after his death, it's still very hard to walk around the city without being aware of his contribution. His name adorns ancient almshouses and modern skyscrapers. The city has an annual Colston Day and a local delicacy called a Colston Bun. There are men whose impact is so immense it is difficult to imagine the town had they not lived. Raffles in uh, Singapore say. Edward Colston was undoubtedly a very great man, but a flawed man, as we all are. Do the flaws outweigh the good that he did and continues to do? They thought so. 
As the plaque on the back of his statue said, erected by citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city, A.D. 1895. Bristol would not be what it is without him, but Bristol is no longer what it was with him. Toppled from his plinth on June the 7th, daubed in paint, used to recreate the death of George Floyd with selfie-taking protesters placing their knees on his neck, rolled down Anchor Road and dumped in Bristol Harbour, Edward Colston. Breckenridge Castleman was a cousin of the John Breckenridge, who was America's vice president under James Buchanan. John Breckenridge Castleman joined the Confederate Army at the age of 19 and led guerrilla units deep in Union territory. He was captured in Indiana and sentenced to death for spying. But President Lincoln commuted the sentence, and instead, after the war, he was exiled from America and went to France to study medicine. Pardoned by Andrew Johnson, he came home to Kentucky, became the state's adjutant general, and as a colonel in the U.S. Army in the Spanish-American War, uh, led the first Kentucky volunteers in the invasion of Puerto Rico. Promoted to brigadier general, Castleman served as military governor of the island. Back home in Louisville, he was commissioner of the Board of Parks for a quarter century, presiding over a park system regarded as one of the city's crown jewels. Castleman was, by the standards of his time and place, a very liberal man. He was in favour of votes for women, and his wife was the first vice president of the Kentucky Equal Rights Association. Upon his death in 1918, the Louisville Courier-Journal published what it headlined a Negro's tribute to General Castleman, written by J. Raymond Harris. Will you give me space in which to speak of the great sorrow that has come to the coloured people in General Castleman's death? Granting the general service in the Confederate Army, Mr. Harris said that yet no hero on the other side ever held so high a niche in the hearts and minds of coloured Kentuckians. As Parks Commissioner, he had resisted calls to segregate Louisville's parks and maintain them as fully integrated until his death. Six years on, in 1924, protesting the board's decision finally to segregate the space, the city's black religious leaders noted that, quote, General Castleman, the father of our park system, refused to allow any kind of racial segregation in the parks of the city. In 1913, he was honoured with a statue, Castleman, 
on his favourite horse. It is believed to be the only equestrian statue in the world for which the horse also posed. So, a brigadier general in the US Army, a military governor of Puerto Rico, a man who presided over a rare desegregated area of Kentucky life and held the highest niche in the hearts and minds of colored Kentuckians. But there is no possibility of redemption in the new America. The teenage castleman was, after all, a Confederate volunteer, toppled by the city of Louisville on June the 8th. Brigadier General John Breckenridge Castleman and his trusty steed. Weep no more, my lady, oh, weep no more today. We will sing one song for the old Kentucky home, for the And that is it for our show today. We had a busy weekend at Stein Online, including Kathy Shadel's homage a Hamilton, or at least to one of its greatest media sons, and our Sunday song spot in which I bade farewell to Vera Lynn and wondered whether they'll always be in England or indeed if we will meet again. Oh, and we had some Father's Day observances too. If you were too busy toppling Martin Luther King's statue because he was partial to an Eskimo pie on a hot summer afternoon, I hope you'll want to check out one or three of the foregoing as a new week begins. The madness continues. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.